Today's episode of The Smoke Pit is brought to you by the New Jersey Air National Guard. Leave your limits on the ground by visiting GoANG.com or call 1-800-2-GO-ANG to find out about the amazing career opportunities and benefits offered by the New Jersey Air National Guard. Welcome to the Smoke Pit. What up, though? Back again for season five. Wah, 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 wah. Wah, wah, wah. Oh, fantastic season, guys. Uh, so at the end of this episode, we have an interview with uh, Congressman Whitman. Oh, man. And he's going to tell us about the congressional hearings that he's chairing uh, about the botched withdrawal in Afghanistan. So you want to stick around for that. In the meantime, though, we figured we'd, uh, we'd kick it around a little bit, maybe do a little bit of update. Brought on a good friend of ours, uh, Jeremy. He has been running uh, Sword and Shield for, what, the better part of... Ten years. Ten years now, right? Yes, sir. But uh, more so than that, you have uh, quite the crazy backstory. I actually just recently found out the other day that you had cooked for the Queen of England. I had, yeah. I thought I was going to be a chef when I was young. I started off working in restaurants. My first job ever was at the restaurant that Jimmy Hoffa disappeared from. Wow. Mm-hmm. Great basement in that place. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't find anything if you're still listening. And That's for those correct. of you who are not old enough to get that joke, correct yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so in, a, in addition to that, um, we were actually talking about our, our various dive experience and uh, there, there were a few things that you said that I, I knew I just had to get you on the show and, and talk about. So just to set this up a little bit, all, all three of us are uh, licensed divers. We've all done uh, saltwater, freshwater. However, comma, pause for effect, Jeremy is far <laughs> more experienced than I am in, uh, in diving. And so one story we really wanted to bring to you guys was the instance where I believe an insurance company had uh, commissioned you to salvage a, uh, a van that had been driven in a lake. That's correct. And I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> yep. So uh, after years of commercial diving uh, all throughout the Caribbean and southwest Florida and all up and down the east coast, we built mega yacht marinas and we also did high-speed subaqueous fuel crossings for military installations. Oh, wow. So through the early I understood 2000s, like three of those words. <laughs> Sabacquius? <laughs> is that a word? That's right. Yes. Yeah, so Alexander, how, is that a word? That is a word. And I'm over here like pitching a tent over the fact that that word was used on this podcast in its correct context. Hey, we fancy here. Okay. We have you on the show. We're super fancy. <laughs> so we were looking for a way that we could fuel naval vessels, Coast Guard vessels, DEA fast choppers and fast boats, things like that at a much higher fuel rate per minute. Yeah. And we were bringing in... Uh, much larger pipes. We were crossing uh, inland cut channels with them on the bottom of the actual inlet. Oh, wow. And then reburying them and uh, doing fuel farms and a lot of fun doing all of that. When I left working for that company, I moved up to Tennessee, where I reside now. I had a no-compete contract that had uh, clause for mileage in it, and we started a boat dock building company. So we started building beautiful boat docks. I targeted high-end residential docks. And well, my, that's where the money is. Yep. My niche was making the boat dock architecturally match the home. Oh, wow. So if they had a that's $10 like, million home. Yeah. Yeah. And they had pillars and arches and things like that, we would incorporate all of that architecture into the boat dock. So if they had a stripper pole, could you put one on the dock Absolutely. too? Absolutely. I would <laughs> think of all the things he's been challenged with, that would probably be the easiest. <laughs> Four bolts and a weight limit. You're good to go. Right on. And so you, um, yeah, you started doing uh, diving for like recovery. And I remember you told me that like you offered the company just to go down there and find the VIN number. That's correct. And they told you no, that they actually wanted the the van salvaged. Yeah, someone had drove it off the side of a quarry, and this is in northeast Tennessee. It was in Scott County. Uh, so this was about 2,000 feet of elevation as well. So once I'd moved to Tennessee, a lot of diving at elevation, which changes the game a little bit. Yeah. Um, they had a report that a, a vehicle had gone in, and uh, there was some fuel coming up. They had a fuel slick, so they didn't want to leave the vehicle in. They wanted the vehicle extracted. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I can only imagine just like, as it's going off the side of the quarry. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, do you, was there anybody in it when it went off, or did they just kind of like just 
<laughs> nope. It, they just Jump had out. the report of the stolen vehicle, and there was a camera footage on the way into the quarry that they had the the description of the vehicle. Yeah. Oh, so, it was just baby town frolics. Yep. They were able to match description <laughs> of the vehicle to likely report of a stolen vehicle, and this yeah. is how the insurance company got involved. So initially, and this was February, so... Um, cold, real cold. AF. Absolutely, I had to get a, a a different regulator for this because forty two feet at the bottom of the quarry, I was worried about my regs freezing up, and so I got some equipment. I scheduled the dive for about a week out. Initially, I was hoping I could convince Allstate to just let me get some footage of the VIN and leave it down there. Yeah, they took that. They took a couple days with that and came back and said, "No, we've got extra hard the pass." <laughs> yeah. Next problem was we're in a quarry, so we have 30-foot-tall stone walls. Oh, so wow. what do we do? I get one of the good old boys that's got a D6 dozer <laughs> and a whole lot of chain, and the plan is to bag it, float it, get it to break the surface, chain it up, and let this dozer just drag it up the wall. Right. You're just down at the, uh, the, the save-and-go, and you're like, hey, you there, citizen. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> Pretty much something very similar to this. Um, so we had done a ton of boats for them and typically with boats back in the day, uh, we would just, again, bag the boat, float the boat up to the top, get control, make sure that we control its ascent so that we don't get leakage from fuel or oil. And once the gunnels break, various other fluids, that's correct. So you really literally floated people's boats. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Once the gunnels would break the surface, we'd throw a, a pump in, we'd pump it out. All I had to do was get the boat to touch the boat launch and my job was over if they wanted me to extract it from the launch put it on a trailer take it anywhere that was all extra if i was in less than 100 feet of water i charged a hundred dollars for per foot so if it was a 20 foot bass boat it was two grand for me to get it to touch the boat launch that seems like relatively inexpensive for what i would think Mm -hmm. if i was in more than 100 foot depth of water i charged 200 dollars a foot and so for people who aren't um are not very familiar with uh with like dive charts and stuff like that uh depending on what you're breathing because you got to put stuff in your body to survive and uh, i'll defer to the expert here to to explain a little bit but uh, depending on what you're breathing, you can either go to a certain depth or you can be at a certain depth for a certain time. Sure. So the nitrogen amount builds up in your blood. The more that you breathe the compressed air and the longer you breathe the compressed air and your body needs a certain amount of time to purge that nitrogen. Yeah. If you fail to yield to those tables, you can get nitrogen narcosis. And the uh, bends. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this worst also, hangover ever. Yeah, this comes <laughs> on like feeling drunk underwater. Which and, is uh, not a place you want to be drunk. No, not absolutely. so much. Even if it is actual booze, that's just a bad plan. Not nearly as fun as it sounds, boys and girls. Yeah, because I got my uh, my license in um, down in Roatan and uh, Honduras, and like the water, even at like a hundred feet, was still like eighty degrees. And then AJ and I went diving in a quarry uh, a couple like back up in I think uh, late winter earlier this year, and we were like in like five mil suits. Uh, or maybe it was a seven? The first time when it was super cold, yeah. it was seven mil suits. Yeah, we were in we seven were, mil suits. We were only maximum like 57 feet down. Wearing yeah. 40 pounds of weight, so you can get down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so like when the the water drops down 30, 40 degrees, like it turns into a whole new ball game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. When you hit the first thermocline down there at 32, 33 feet, um, now all of a sudden there's big chunks of ice that are floating around. Yeah, and AJ actually uh, is a certified ice diver. Which you have to have a, a legally in certain cases, you have to have the cert, uh, certification to be able to do certain things. And you know what's very cool about that? Correct me if I'm wrong, AJ, but the ice brings out the visibility. It's some of the most, some of the most, the clearest visibility you could ever hope for when you're doing ice diving. It does, and that is true. I was really waiting. I, I was waiting for Dan to come up with a joke. I was waiting for the punchline at the end of the ice diving thing. <laughs> well, um, I can't just be happy for your success. You are often happy for my success, but it also is the case that when you found out I was an ice diver, there were certain number other members of our squad that thought that was hysterical. But uh, no, it, it does bring out the clarity a lot. The only thing for me is that I'm from Southeast Louisiana originally. And so like, that's why I got it done because it was just on a lark. I was like, let's do the exact opposite of what I'm comfortable with. And uh, the whole thing about... Like if you have to cut your way down, cutting your way back up or making sure you get back to the hole or making sure your support crew on the top is paying Uh, attention. I'm just like, that is a lot of variables I do not want to be involved with. Like I don't really see myself being in the water in Lake Michigan anytime soon. 
But if I am, there's going to be like at least three people that owe, that I owe money to, right? That way they know <laughs> I'm for Jimmy Hoffa. That way they know <laughs> I'm right. coming back. They'd be like, I'd kill him, but. All right, so <clears throat> you you finally get down to to where this uh, vehicle is located, and, and walk us through that. Well, it's upside down, so <laughs> that, hence why the gas is leaking out, and there's a gas sheen up top. So they were right, inverted. <laughs> yeah. So right off the bat, I want to right the vehicle, and I want to get the air pocket correct in the gas tank so that I'm not working in a big slurry of gas all day. So yeah. I bag the right side. I start inflating the right side, and it starts to turn. As it starts to turn, I can see that one of the windows is broken that's down inside of the mud. And I decide I'm going to open the door because this is a great pillar opportunity for me to get another bag on it and get a little better control of it. So I swim up to it. This is a Chevy Astro van, a white Chevy Astro van. Uh, I swim around <laughs> to the other side, and as I was there, was there candy inside? <laughs> only, only good. There was candy in inside for someone, but not for me. <laughs> So I open the sliding door and uh, I go to, to bag the A-pillar there between the sliding door and the passenger door so that I can get better control of the van. I'm going to try to level it out before I start the ascent. And all of a sudden, I'm just feeling incredibly woozy and I can hear my heartbeat in my head and it's all I can hear and I can feel it in both sides of my neck and I start feeling like I'm going to throw up. Now, no judgment in my early 20s, I was such a heavy drinker and wild man that I'd already removed all the O-rings from all my regs, so I could just throw right up through my regulator, no problem, <laughs> and instantly purge and go back to doing. So I'm not as nearly as worried about throwing up. Some of our as, Navy diver listeners can uh, relate to that. Uh, I'm not nearly as worried about throwing up as I am about my heartbeat just beating out the side of my head and my vision starting to blur. And as the van starts to write and I start to see the inside and the silt is clearing out of the inside. It's in this moment that I realize inside of the van is a mobile meth lab. <laughs> nice. I am completely enveloped in a, a whole host of chemicals that are now affecting my, uh, my, my well-being. All right, so somebody just yeeted this van off the side of a quarry cliff and it did a, a corkscrew in the air as it was coming down. <laughs> Came down inverted. Came down inverted. Like it was fighting the Russians in the Cold War. Right. And it's just filled with meth lab chemicals. Mm -hmm. And there you are at like... 42 feet. 42 feet. In a quarry that's 2,000 feet elevation. That's a 2,000... You're deep elevated. That's, a, that's over three atmospheres already. It's 19 degrees outside, and it was it was a the water 49 be, yeah. degree water temp when I got in at the surface. At the surface. So it's got to be near freezing towards the bottom. It's terrible. And I'm wearing about 60 pounds of weight so and that you, I can work on the bottom without, you know, without struggling. And you just got redneck Kamehameha with a bunch of meth chemicals. A uh, 100%. <laughs> and it's a first-timer, folks. <laughs> so it's it's not a buzz that I could get my head around. Yeah, it's, it's not like you welcomed it like an old yeah. friend and gave it a blanket to lay down on your couch. No. This, ah, yes. This, I remember this feeling. This was like a baseball bat to the face in the darkness. So I ended up having to bail out and come up. But I had so much money invested in the day, I couldn't call it a day. So luckily, we get to open up one of the shacks. We get some heat going on. I, I get out. I get to get my head together. We started the dive that morning about 9.15, and I was back out of the water by about 10.15. Um, and I, it took me about till 2 o'clock before I was ready to say, okay, I'm going to go back down in. I'm just going to stay along the bottom. I'm going to yeah. move along the bottom. I'm going to bag all four sides, and I'm, I'm just going to get the other three bags on and I'm going to get this thing to the top and get a chain on it. And because uh, I had this D6 there, which I had about 2000 bucks into just having the dozer there for the day. Yeah. And on top of that, we had to get a guy that had 500 feet of chain, which is very difficult to find. So yeah. that we could get continuous chain from where the dozer could line up all the way down and, and get in. So I had a support staff that we'd already paid to be there and all so that. So Jeremy, it sounds like with the, like by your formula of how much per feet versus all the expenditures and stuff like that, brother, man, it sounds like you made off with like five bucks and a McRib sandwich <laughs> after, after yeah. the end of this. Yeah, no, it was not a great day. It was, uh, it was a rough one. I still did all right. I was able to charge some extra fees to Allstate after that. Yeah, I'd like line item five, 
getting redneck yeah. kamehameha like $4,000. Recovery from methamphetamine <laughs> encapsulation. I would like to go back to that moment. So from about 1015 till about 1400, you were incapacitated due to your exposure to chemicals on a job site. <laughs> what did you do for that period of time? Were you reading comic books? Were you, were you listening to trap music? Like what was going on in that shack? Uh, I got out of the I got out of the suit. Yeah, I got out of the suit. I dried up. I put some dry clothes on. Uh, I did some serious meditating. I did a lot of hydration, a lot of water. Um, I kept washing my hair because I felt like it was in my hair. I know that sounds crazy, but I just kept wanting to like wash my hair out the first 30 minutes I was in there. My scalp was stinging. Um, behind my ears was stinging. The back of my neck was stinging. Um, the top, the backs of my hands were stinging. So I, I was trying to flush out and I was just trying to get a lot of water in me and I was trying to get warm. I was so cold when I, when it first happened and I realized that I had to get away, I, I had a little panicky moment and in all of my flailing, I felt a lot of the cold water come down through the face oh, wow, of my suit yeah. and, and come into my chest. And as soon as the cold water hit my armpits, it kind of panicked me even a little bit more. Uh, so I, it took me about 20 minutes, 30 minutes really just to get my shit together. Once I got out of the water, I was, I was, um, I was in full panic mode by the time I, I breached surface. Yeah. It's too bad they didn't have a van full of MDMA. They could have just given you something soft to touch and like, here's a teddy bear and some, uh, some marshmallows, man. Big, See you in a couple hours. Yeah. A big four foot teddy bear would have done it. <laughs> yeah. I can just imagine you like major pain in the, the scene where he finally gets like forcibly retired and he's doing like Tai Chi, like in his boxers. <laughs> it's been two whole weeks since I killed a man and I'm already feeling the itch. Uh, yeah. I will. Ad- I will admit, and this is a uh, this is this shows I was a little softer than I am now back then. But I will admit, I did not do any more car recoveries and quarries after that day. Well, I, I don't blame <laughs> you. No, I, I can't. Man, uh, so there are, there are a lot of tourist agencies in uh, in various places that are you know south of the, the Mason Dixon line that will you know just take your average Joe Blow tourist and like give them like a maybe hour long period of instruction. And just yeet them into the ocean with scuba gear. They're like, all right. Ten-year-old scuba gear. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's there's plenty of videos on Reddit and what have you of, like, you know, some you know, middle-aged uh, soccer mom from you know, Minnesota who's never been diving in her entire life. And she just has a full panic at, like, 15 feet depth, which is scary enough as it is, you know, mm-hmm. because, like, 15 feet may not seem like a, a lot, but if you screw around, like... You can really hurt yourself. You could drown in a bucket. It's 15 feet of oceans enough. Yeah. And so, like, it's there's people out there who panic just kind of like at like, and this is warm temperature. This is with dive instructors and surrounded, like, where you can, like, look up and see the breaking of the water, you know? And there's been a few moments where I've been pretty fucking deep and I've had that little, the little soissant of panic that's hit me for one reason or another and i'm like no daniel ninja mind focus get your shit together when you went through the reef at night but there was that moment where i fucking panicked because i was like i'm gonna die i'm gonna die like i brought my own doom by my own hand and my own choices it's inevitable (laughs) like daniel how could you do this to yourself the ripple of the moonlight across the sand of the ocean floor in the darkness of night is something that such a small percentage of humans could ever appreciate. So being in that is an elite club all on its own, because once you see it, you could close your eyes and see it anytime you want. It's just absolutely mesmerizing. Really? <laughs> you're just going to drop that verbal seduction on me? Really? I feel like if you're not recording audiobooks soon, I'm going to be disappointed because that was like just off the top of your head in your normal speaking voice. You were like, the moon's reflection off to the surface at the bottom of the ocean. I'm like, he looked me in the eyes too when he yeah. gave me that poem. <laughs> Look into my eyes and tell me more. No, really though. I mean, it's something you never forget. The first time <gasps> you see it at n- night diving, it's overwhelming to begin with because there's the uncertainty of night diving. There's the fear. I mean, everything that is in our inner beings tells us we should not be deep in the ocean. We should definitely not be deep in the ocean at night. Yeah. So already getting to a mental state where you throw that caution to the wind and then saying, all right, we're going to do this. The first time you see it, it's so incredible. But what I've always been amazed by is the hundredth time I saw it, it was just as incredible as the first time. It's like when you really, really love somebody and every day they just look freaking amazing. Just like the first time you realize that moment. Wow. Seeing the moon on the, the light of the moon on the bottom of the ocean is absolutely one of the most incredible things you could experience on planet Earth, in my opinion. I was more focused on making sure that there weren't like 
creatures down there that are about to eat me. I'm like violently shining my surefire around to make sure nothing's <laughs> about to sneak up on me. I got to say at, at that moment, so diving is one of those things for me where I just let it go, right? If I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Like I will have a straight panic attack if I start running out of air because I am terrified of drowning. Anything other than drowning, I'm like, if a shark gets me, fuck it, it'll be fast, right? And I can't, what are you going to do, fight a shark? I'm going to turn around and punch it. All right, this isn't Tomb Raider. That doesn't work that way. That's not how physics functions. So, I mean, honestly, as long as it's not something that's going to, like, sting me and then I have to suffer for, for 20 minutes while I'm trying to get to the surface, yeah. anything anything beyond that, I'm just like, whatever, take me. I'm a heavy breather to begin with, so I'm down yeah. there just mouth breathing away. <laughs> All my friends are looking at their gauges, and they've got a thousand more in their tank than I do. And I'm like, "What the hell is going on that I'm having?" You know, you guys are all. I got to go up 15 minutes before you guys. Yeah, I bought I bought uh, steel hundred high pressures so that I could hang with my boys that were doing 80 <laughs> aluminums. <laughs> yeah, I um I I don't quite have that uh, moment with the ocean floor. But I, I do remember that, like, my kind of, like, oh, shit moment, like, when I started diving was going to the edge of, like, the seawall. And so it's kind of like that Finding Nemo moment where you, like, you swim out and you kind of have, like, the edge and you're right there at, like, the precipice and it's nothing but, like, the abyss. One of the most scared places I've ever been underwater was in a situation like you just described. We yeah. were in Andros, Bahamas, and they have a fantastic... Uh, barrier reef there it's the second largest barrier reef in the world next to the great barrier reef in australia it's so big that i was actually diving on the other end of it in honduras isn't that incredible yeah now they have a wall there if you go from from nichols town andros and you were to take your boat over to like chub k where they have the massive sailfish tournament every year um, about a mile off of the coast of andros they have a wall in the tongue of the ocean that drops off about 1500 to 2000 feet and the first time we dove that wall I swam about a hundred feet out past the wall so that I could look back at the wall and see all the life on it talk about steel tanks talk about your steel balls like I didn't go more than 10 feet past the seawall the blackness underneath you is a blackness like the vacuum of space it is just absolutely void of all light and and as you look down beneath you it is absolutely terrifying and your heart starts fluttering and you think I just want to get back to where I know it's 80 feet safety because right now they're saying like this is the you know the deepest area for the next 500 miles any direction in the bottom of the ocean and you're just out there thinking about what kind of sea serpent could be down there looking at you like a snack it's like kaiju down there just eyeballing you no absolutely terrifying if you just gave up and just let yourself sink right like they'd have to send a fucking robot to recover your body absolutely yeah. So here's the question for both of you that the listeners are thinking about right now, right? Yeah. You mentioned Finding Nemo, and then you mentioned the seawall. Did you guys go touch the butt? <laughs> he touched the butt. Uh-huh. Did you go touch the butt, Daniel? Uh, you, no. You old butt toucher. <laughs> no. What the, what the listeners are really wondering is what was your oh shit moment? Down in Florida somewhere, I forget. I was off the, off the coast, and... When you first start diving and you don't realize what people are capable of at that at that skill level, I watched the the first mate of the deck take the guide rope and dive completely free in like a pair of like just board shorts and nothing, just board shorts straight down and tied our boat off at like 60 feet and then bounce right back up. And I'm like, buddy, I can't even get under the water for more than 30 seconds. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> So he goes down, he comes back up, pops back up, slicks his hair back like it's nothing, and just goes through like the safety brief, which for some reason, unbeknownst to me, includes don't throw toilet paper down the, the toilet on the boat. <laughs> he goes, if you do, don't worry about it. We'll have the captain assist you by helping you shove your arm down there to get it. And... um I don't know why there's always toilet related stuff like that one in Cuba. I was literally telling him that story yeah, in the pre-interview I heard it two hours ago. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So um so he tells this story which kind of puts my mind off. I'm like, "Shove my hand." Ah, that was funny. And so I'm forgetting about the fact that this human aqua missile just did 60 meters of straight free dive. Wait, 60 meters or 60 feet? 60 feet. Okay. Sorry. I'm about to say 60 meters? Holy fuck, test that man. Like, that is an alien. <laughs> I mean, whatever. So 60 feet, okay? So we hop down there, right? Or we, we jump off the boat. This is like my 
second dive ever. And the first one was in the pool. So I get off the boat and we're following the guy wire and we get down to, I want to say probably about 50 feet. And I'm starting to feel like the first thermocline change. And it's a little one because it's Florida. Everything's just 80 degrees all the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And there was a school of silverfish. But there was so many of them. I had never seen that. I've been to an aquarium where, like, the tank is bigger than this building that we're sitting in. And I have never seen that many silverfish in my entire life. And either each one was about maybe maximum six inches long. But there were thousands of them. And they're swirling around the guy wire. They're not touching it, but they're swirling around it. And as we go to swim down the guy wire to get past it, they would kind of just open up the circle. Wow. And you swim through and then they close up the circle, right? They're not yeah. giving any, they're not like perch where they'll just come like ninja Hayaka your forehead just for being in their territory, <laughs> right. which has happened. We had a dive instructor that straight up was like, yeah, watch the perch. They're a little violent and like pulls her balaclava up and she's got a scar from one just like giving her the business. Wow. And it wasn't like that. That'd was, be enough to throw you in a bit of a panic. Yeah, because right? uh, if you're near one of their like nest grounds, they get territorial. Mm-hmm. But it was just like these thousands of silverfish. And it was like as you come down the guy wire, you have they're going counterclockwise in a circle by the wire. And then there's the outer group of them are going clockwise. And then the outer group of that is going counterclockwise. So it's this giant tornado of slow moving little mirrors in the ocean and it's, wow. again it's florida so it's it's sunny it is no not cloud in the sky they're getting perfect reflection and it's perfectly bouncing up so it's like living inside of like uh, uh what do you call those things from the disco area uh disco ball a disco ball yeah so it's like it's like swimming into a disco ball only you don't have to worry about dressing like it's the 70s <laughs> so it was, it was like this is beautiful experience you just keep going and going and going and finally you get deep enough and they're kind of like, all right, that's where we end. Uh, that's the floor show. Tip your waitress. And I was like, I kind of just want to go back and do that. Can I just go back and do that? And they're like, no, no, we got all this educational stuff to do. But boo. I love I boo. The East Coast of Florida. East Coast of Florida dives are so much fun. West Coast of Florida is just like diving in wet mud. Well, see, I agree. The trouble with diving in Florida <clears throat> is that uh, at any given point in time, like you might have to contend with some of the wildlife. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of sharks off the coast of Florida. There are a lot of meth heads off the coast of Florida. <laughs> Thank right. you for saying it. I was about to say more meth fans. <laughs> yeah, and you might get, and honestly, you're more likely to get bit by a meth head when you're diving than you are by a shark. And while I usually have no desire to dive in the Gulf, a good friend of mine who is um, former Marsoc and yeah. is now a realtor, lives down in Alabama, he just posted the other day, they went out Megalodon tooth diving from Orange Beach, Alabama, and he was showing his bounty. He went with the service out there that takes you out there to find the, the fossils and Megalodon teeth, and it looked absolutely fantastic. So That's so cool. I am very interested in, in getting a dive in up out of Orange Beach and, yeah. and finding some fossils. That looks fantastic. A buddy of mine was telling me about putting together a meg shelf dive sometime, I think, when it warms back up. So I'll, I'll keep you posted. Absolutely. I'm all in on that when you're ready. There, I was actually talking to someone here at the uh, uh, the restaurant Food. In, uh, in Foodie. Foodie. I don't know why. It's just the way it's pronounced. And uh, Fantastic chicken waffle. Fantastic. Right? Yeah, you to sit in a bank vault and eat mm-hmm. like, highbrow stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. it used to be a bank and they turn it into like a, a hipster restaurant with fantastic chicken and waffles. And so the the guy that was working there was just like, yeah, I was driving my boat down the Potomac, and like I just pull off in sandbanks all the time, and I just find like mastodon jaws and like vertebrae and megalodon teeth and all kinds of shit and fossils. Oh, this would be fantastic. Yeah. and that's like here locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you haven't uh, looked into the possibility of maybe doing some diving, I'd say look into it. Yeah, it's not a super expensive hobby. There's the classes and all that stuff, but once you get past the certification, you just go rent. Like a hundred bucks, you can rent your gear and you can go down to the quarry and do whatever you want to do for the day. Yeah. You don't really need any real training. (laughs) (laughs) Disclaimer. (laughs) Yeah. Just get yourself uh, linked up with one of those shady tourist companies. that will just yeet you into potentially disastrous situations. You you can go to Cancun and be diving in 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) For the legal disclaimer, the Smoke Pit Podcast is not endorse or condone illegal activities. Viewer discretion is advised. <laughs> no, I, I think that like maybe the uh, the three of us should put together a, an audiobook project, or maybe we just read lines from like Fifty Shades of Grey or something. Did I tell you about the nine eleven? 
I mean, I was aware of 9-11. And not just 9-11. I'm sorry. I got, a, <laughs> I got ahead of myself in my brain and I did not give that proper context. I can prove empirically that 9-11 is directly responsible for Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, I can I can track that. Yeah. Right. I'd so, like to follow this train of thought. So the guy who started My Chemical Romance, the band, mm-hmm. he was- I love them. To my understanding, he witnessed 9-11- and the Twin Towers coming down is kind of the emotional impetus for what became his concept for My Chemical Romance. Now, the person oh, who wow. the person who wrote... You TikToking uh, son of a bitch. I know you heard this on TikTok. Probably. That's where I get a lot of my good, <laughs> weird information these days. This, this, is, this is Gerard Way, right? I don't remember. I think so. But it's, it's per- mm-hmm. perfectly possible. So the person who wrote the Twilight books has since come out and said that a big influence on the way the vampires were presented, uh, which kind of gave her the idea to write the books in the first place, was from My Chemical Romance, right? The kind of um, taking the Anne Rice uh, vampires, like the very kind of liberal, uh, soft-handed European effete, uh, not scary, but like foreign accents. Interview with a vampire-esque. Exactly. And taking those and like kind of updating them for the My Chemical Romance generation. And then from there, you had someone who wrote fan fiction of the Twilight books. And the editor said, okay, the sex stuff is great. Okay, but all the werewolves and the va- vampire, we, we, that's been done. Take that shit out and we'll, we'll give it a second go. And they did, and there's Fifty Shades of Grey. Wow. Wow. Confession, I've never watched Fifty Shades of Grey. Neither have I, because... Confession, I've read all three of the books. Are they good? Honestly, if you take them for what they're worth, and you're not like expecting them to be like... You know, some like great literary work, it's not a bad audible uh, audiobook to have on during a road trip. All right. Nice. I may have to try them. Honestly, like, there are worse things you could read. Real quick, before we get too far off the point. Yeah. Because uh, the, the end of the episode always sneaks up on me because I'm kind of just in, into it. There was a period at the beginning of the show while you were introducing Jeremy. And you mentioned that you cooked for the Queen of England. That's correct. And I'm not going to dive too hard into that unless we got time for it. But what I really want to know is what was her opinion? Because Shh. as a person who is... The leader of the empire with the blandest food. If she didn't say this was amazing, thank you. Anything other than that was shut up, old woman, and eat some cabbage. So I apprenticed for a chef. At the time, there was only 88 master chefs in the world. Ed Janos was one, and I I was doing an apprenticeship for him. Um, He was a maniac. This guy was out of his mind every night, throwing plates at people. He'd come over and smash a plate on the back of your shoulders. If he didn't, if he, I remember one night when he blew a plate up on my cold table and got glass shards and everything, and I had to redo my entire cold table as the rush was beginning. And he did this as punishment because there was a tiny speck of black on the toast of uh, something that was going out. What was it? It was a. it was a terrine. It was a uh, grilled eggplant terrine that had roasted red peppers, shoved cheese, um, garlic, shallots. It was really nice, but it had this toast outer to it. And he saw one black piece on it and just lost his mind, smashing plates. Well, so that this sounds guy, familiar. Yeah, this guy was a maniac to work for. Um, but yeah, we had an event where we had the, the queen out there, and uh, we had the entire junior Olympic team that year. Uh, out there cooking and we did um, braised sea bass with a we did braised sea bass with a brown butter sage sauce so it was actually a very simple uh, non-complex recipe Uh, but she did love it absolutely that's good to hear at that point in my life I thought I was going to be a chef forever it was not soon after that that I realized that that is a terrible occupation (laughs) (laughs) and that you work every night, you work every weekend, you work every holiday. You'll never have any time to yourself except for Monday nights. (laughs) Yeah. The food service industry is only good so far as it can make you cook a few things well, and then you got to dip out. Mm -hmm. Like I can make a few desserts. Well, I make a few dinners. Well, I was like, that's enough. I'm good. If I get any further into this, it's going to this way madness lies. Yes. And uh, so he was one of the few master chefs in the world. Did he have any uh, any uh, other pupils that we may recognize? No, not that I recall. Nope. Nothing, nothing notable that I can recall. I'm sure he did, but they were either before or after. So there's no one in your class that has like a... Nope. No, nobody that I, nobody that I recall that, that did anything outstanding. 
cut to Gordon Ramsay just chucking things against walls. <laughs> yeah, Gordon Ramsay did work for him. They they did. Work That's for what him. I was getting. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Gordon Ramsay did work with him for quite a while. Like I knew the answer. I was just yep. the idiot sandwich. I mean, yeah. come on. You had to lead me to it. Like yeah. dangles the carrot, dangles the carrot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, where can people find you on social media? And what's your website? Uh, swordandshieldstrategic.com and on Instagram we are Sword and Shield Strategic and the Body Armor Guy. We've got two pages on there. Right on. Thank you. Well, and uh, so we we have been making body armor for quite a while. I'm very passionate about protective services. On top of that, we also do uh, high end medical and trauma kits, uh, OEM production, and we do a lot of design work for folks. Anything within the tactical realm when it comes to nylon production, we always love a challenge. We have a full R&D shop and um, a full sew shop. And uh, it it started off as something, uh, it actually started off as divine intervention. I I was led to a place while I had the dock building business, and I had been hoping for a change in my life. And I went out to a large auction for equipment, thought I was going to get a deal on equipment, got no equipment, ended up meeting a guy that had uh, rifle armor plates. And I I was able to get a few of the rifle armor plates from him. Uh, At the time, I was a uh, three-gun competitive shooter. And uh, I I brought home the armor plates. I shot them up. I was amazed. They stopped everything. You've had quite the life. Uh, I get (laughs) bored easy is what I tell everybody. Uh, jump from hobby to hobby. Commercial diving, cooking for the Queen of England, mm-hmm. just just freebasing meth chemicals that have been festering <laughs> on the bottom of a quarry for however long. That's what makes them taste the best, Daniel. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come in here and uh, illuminate us a little bit with uh, some of your some of your things. So before we go, I just like to have a quick little contest between the two of you. Uh, a lot of people have been trying to convince AJ to be doing voice acting work and uh, YouTube channels and stuff like that. Real quick, I'd like to give you each a turn. Could each of you just go EA Sports? It's in the game. Jeremy, we'll start with you. EA Sports. It's in the game. AJ. EA Sports. It's in the game. All right, so you heard all three of us say it. Please uh, shoot us a message on our Instagram. Let us know who you thought won. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Now, please enjoy this exclusive interview with Virginia's first district representative, Congressman Rob Whitman. Please excuse the audio. We were out of the studio and fortunate enough to catch him in between congressional sessions. Congressman, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, doing well. Thanks for asking. It's uh, It's been a little time since we've seen each other, since we did the uh, the range day. We dumped about 400 rounds into a sob. We did. the sheriff's facility. It was a good day. Yeah, it was neat. Um, unfortunately, I wish we were meeting under better terms, but uh, here you are uh, today uh, with your fellow representatives uh, looking for answers for the American public yes, yes. about what happened in Afghanistan. Would you tell us a little bit about um, your thoughts on how the proceedings are going so far? Well, there were proceedings yesterday in the Senate, so that helped inform us on a little more of the background information and the answers that General Milley, Secretary Austin, and General McKenzie gave. Today was a chance for us to build on that. And fundamentally, what I believe the American people deserve to know is, how did this colossal failure in Afghanistan occur? How did this chaos unfold based upon the decisions that were made? So my question directly to General Milley was that the president stated on August 18th that under no circumstances could there have been anything other than this chaos that we saw as troops withdrew from Afghanistan. And I asked him in his professional military judgment, did he think that this chaos was avoidable in the way troops were withdrawn. And he kind of gave a convoluted answer about, well, there were two parts to this, and there was the evacuation, and there was the other drawdown element. But I went back to him and said, looking at this on a continuum, you know, was this chaos avoidable? I, I think clearly that it was. He was somewhat evasive with the answer. Uh, I, I believe that any military leader looking at this has to say that this was completely avoidable. I think you could still withdraw from it. Afghanistan, but this was certainly not the way to do it. And they kept going back to saying, well, we gave the information to the president and he made his decision. The other element, too, is that a statement this morning talked about this 
effort in leaving Afghanistan was a logistical success, but a strategic failure. And I told him, I suspect that the Americans that were left behind and the civs, the special immigrant visa holders, probably disagree with him on that. Mm. That it was not a logistical success. success. Yes, they airlifted a lot of people out of there. Uh, some of those, too, were not quite sure from a security standpoint about their background. So those are things we're going to have, have to deal with here. Yes, sir. We um, we have confirmed reports from the Army that um, a female soldier was assaulted by a group of immigrants. Mm -hmm. They've had various um, uh, reports of things. And I know in, in any uh, given case, if you have a large number of people, there are going to statistically be some, yes. some uh, bad people in that. Uh, it seems that a lot of veterans are upset that we had service members who died uh, evacuating them, mm -hmm. and then this is the kind of uh, behavior that was brought upon shortly thereafter. Right. And Pop Smoke Media broke that story yeah. as far as we were the first ones to get confirmation that the, the Army acknowledged that happened. Mm -hmm. And a lot of veterans who are watching the press briefings from the Pentagon feel very frustrated because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of uh, clear answers being given that it's more so preserving optics on how does the situation look versus informing the American people. So what, what questions do you think that the American people, particularly uh, the veterans who served in this conflict and their family members, uh, deserve to have answered? Sure. I, I think they want to know, how did we end up with this massive strategic failure? And I, I think those folks that have served have looked at this and said, listen, uh, they've served in Afghanistan, or even those that have served in Iraq. I think these, these all of these things are are joined because you know we saw the withdrawal in Iraq. We saw we had to go back. We saw when ISIS ISIS uh, uh, emerged there as the extremist organization there. And I think we see many of the same things happening there in Afghanistan. And anybody that served there looks at this and says, you know, why why did we withdraw in this in this way? Listen, I think I think many said, uh, you know, there there is a time for us to get out. The question is though, what did we leave behind? And is that area of the world less safe? And I would argue that it is. We have no human intelligence on the ground now. We have no signal intelligence on the ground now. The over-the-horizon capability is way over the horizon. I would argue we're in a worse position now than we were on 9-10 mm. of 2001. I think members of the military look at this and go, in that scenario, if we're in a worse situation now than we were on 9-10, then what was the utility of all the blood, sweat, treasure, and lives that were spent there in Afghanistan? And I think that's a very, very legitimate question. And what's, what's it going to be going forward? General Milley already said, he thinks in a, in a year or three years, that the extremist organisms will, or organizations will, will be back. And that, too, is, is tremendously frustrating, because we may find ourselves in the same situations we were in Iraq and having to go back uh, to address that instead of withdrawing in a, in a proper way. And especially since the advice from our military leaders were not followed. They said, listen, we ought to draw down to 2,500. General McKenzie was pretty straightforward in saying he didn't think less than 2,500 would allow there to be a safe transition. Particularly with Bagram Air Base. Exactly. Where uh, General McKenzie yesterday said that um, that there was no possible way to keep that area secured if mm -hmm. we uh, drew down beneath a certain number. And many people, particularly in uh, the Senate hearing yesterday, were very critical mm -hmm. of, of giving that up. So moving forward, how do we ensure future generations, like as many of us that served in Iraq and Afghanistan are now mm -hmm. uh, in the age where we're starting uh, families of our own, uh, what kind of insurances uh, do you think that the military will owe us and other Americans that if we continue to give our sons and daughters to the military, mm -hmm. that we won't have another conflict uh, like Iraq, I'm sorry, Afghanistan or Vietnam, where the military never lost a single major battle, but yet we had an unceremonious exit. Yes. Listen, I, I, I think that the way you instill the sense that if someone chooses to serve this nation in uniform, that the military and the nation are going to have their back. And I would say that this has shaken that confidence because of what was sacrificed there in, in Afghanistan. And, and I believe going forward that it's incredibly important for the Congress to hold this administration accountable and how decisions are being made. We know that it's a civilian-run military. We know that the military gave certain 
decision-making matrices to the administration as far as what they should do and what the outcome would be if they did not. Um, my only concern is that did they express that strongly enough? Was there enough pushback to the Biden administration to say this is wrong, what you're doing? And then understanding, too, where did the other secretaries make their play and influence the decision? Mm -hmm. So specifically Secretary Blinken, because I do believe that it was a, a Secretary Blinken, President Biden decision, not based on a, a sound military decision, but based on a political decision, because they were looking at 9-11 as a time to tout the withdrawal. So I don't think that it was a conditions-based withdrawal. I think it was a politically-based withdrawal. And I think when people look at that, and if anybody believes that, and I think a lot of people do, because I've talked to a lot of folks in the military that believe it was driven by politics, I think we have to make sure that within that context that we hold this administration accountable. Because if people believe that decisions are going to be made based on political outcomes and not based on strategic outcomes and tactical outcomes, you're right. You're going, to, you're going to shake the foundation of faith that individuals have in the military. And then also what they're fighting for. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big deal. You know, when you join the military and you raise your right hand to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that you're willing to put your life on the line to do that, you expect reciprocity. You expect the nation and your military leaders to do the same to you. And I would say that confidence with this has been shaking because folks that have served there said, well, well, wait a minute, look at all that was given. And we just expect in return that our backs will be covered by the administration as you withdraw in, in, in those efforts. And I can tell you, I don't believe that members of the military believe that that's the case. Uh, particularly because um, the, uh, the president did speak about uh, the importance of passing legislation like the toxic exposure bill mm -hmm. and references family members who had served, but then, you know, we have veterans who are suffering from various maladies, illnesses, and cancers. Mm -hmm. That bill still hasn't been passed like he promised. And now we have this um, this catastrophic failure where, it, and it's very complicated because, you know, we have to acknowledge that there's two spots. There's everything that led up to this, and then I'd say really the last three months. Yes. And I feel like uh, watching the hearings yesterday, uh, particularly with Senator uh, Warren, that Anytime you try to analyze one, someone else says, well, what about this? And it's like, okay, we, we understand that, uh, but we can hold accountability separate, particularly at the last three months. Yes. Because you had two Marines who um, had their rifle stolen mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of their chain of commands got fired, but then we leave a whole bunch of weapons behind. Yes. And so far, there's been more accountability with the Navy's football team firing the defensive coordinator mm -hmm. than there has been in our military. Uh, so I know you're a very busy man. And I'd like to um, conclude with, do you have any words of um, advice for the people who are currently serving in the military, mm -hmm. want to serve the military, or the veterans who have served before? Absolutely. Well, well, to all those that are currently serving, uh, an immense thanks to your service and to your sacrifice. It takes a special person uh, to raise their right hand to support and defend our Constitution, and also to be willing to die for that. That, that is an incredibly, incredibly significant commitment that somebody makes to this country. And very, very few people are willing to make that. Uh, and so those, for those folks currently serving, a tremendous amount of thanks. For those that have served, the veterans, who have made that commitment, who have served their nation, thank you. And just as you point out, we owe them everything to make sure we take care of them. So if there's exposures there to toxic uh, substances, and whether it's places like Camp Lejeune, or whether it's places like Afghanistan and Iraq with burn pits, you know, we owe it to them to take care of them, especially since these instances were the result of their service to the, to the, to the country. We owe it to them. So, uh, you know, our commitment needs to be to those veterans and we will do everything to make sure that happens. And you're right, uh, there's still things yet to be done there. Uh, for those contemplating serving, this is still a nation based on an idea that is unlike any other idea in the history of mankind. And that is that we are all as individuals born with unalienable rights given to us by our creator. The, the, and these rights are to be protected by a government. And there are people that go into harm's way to protect those rights. And that's what this government is based upon. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it is still an idea worth fighting for. 
we are still working each and every day to form a more, a more perfect union. And even with all the imperfections we see, even with the, the, the questioning of how decisions were being made, we are still the greatest nation the world's ever known. And, and we are that for one single reason, because we have the greatest military the world's ever known, and because we have men and women that are willing to give their lives to protect this form of government. It always amazes me whenever I travel around the world and I visit places like Afghanistan and Iraq, or for that matter, any other place around the world. The question I get asked about the U.S. military most often is, is where, where do these people come from? And you, you're kind of taken aback by that. And I tell them, these are, these are Americans and this is what we believe in. Because in those countries around the world, they don't believe in those same things. They don't believe that you should be willing to give your life for a concept, for an idea, those ideas of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and the liberties and freedoms that come with that, because it's foreign to these other countries. These other countries never would dream of somebody leaving their country to go to another country to defend those, those principles. That's what makes us special. That's what I think continues to drive men and women to serve this nation, and God bless them. And I think that that, uh, that foundation of our old nation is still alive and well, even though we go through a lot of machinations with it. And I'll close with this. I always go to what Winston Churchill said when he was talking with Franklin Roosevelt as we were at the precipice of getting involved in World War II because Nazi Germany was, was really uh, holding Great Britain in danger of taking it over. And Churchill went to, to Roosevelt and said, we need your help. And Roosevelt said, hey, listen, Congress is tied my hands, can't help you. Uh, but ultimately, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, things changed. And Churchill said this, he said, the United States is the greatest nation the world's ever known, and it always does the right thing, after it's exhausted every other possibility. <laughs> and we are good at exhausting every other possibility, but we're still the greatest nation the world's ever known. So. I, um, I, I thank you for your time. Um, while I have you, I just want to um, say, you know, God bless America. Amen. God bless the United States Marine Corps. Yes. Uh, particularly, <laughs> right, uh, particularly, you know, the, the men and women who, um, knew the dangers, knew how uh, untenable the situation was, and still went out there, did their job, had a mass casualty event, one of the worst single day, single instances casualties in the entire war. Mm -hmm. And the, the next day they were still out there smiling and helping children and uh, across people. And so when we, when we look at the problems that we have in the military, yes, there are things like suicide and sexual assault and uh, nepotism and things like that that you see throughout the, uh, the military, but that's only a small fraction of, of what it represents. And I think that we should be able to be proud of the things that we do well, yes. while still acknowledging that, like you said, we're always striving towards a more perfect union. Yes. Um, Congressman, thank you for your time. Thank you. Uh, fair winds following seas, and we'll see you next time. Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks again for the opportunity. Appreciate it.